As you probably know, the Summer to Fall fundraiser is currently running so that I can take care of some urgent medical needs. But this is also part of a larger effort to get the community-supported full-time work of this podcast to a living wage. Can you join in and become an ongoing member at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast? Can you make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast? Or can you send something in the mail? The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. This episode is part of a series on social permaculture, what it means to take care of ourselves and our community. As nearly every episode of the podcast, including this one, ends with a statement, until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. I often wonder, how do people take care of themselves and others in a meaningful way? That question forms the central point of this interview with ecological designer, speaker, and author, Jessie Bloom, as she shares her personal story of becoming trauma-informed, the ways we can work on healing ourselves through mental and physical health routines, how we can help others by taking a mental health first aid training, and how we can create sacred spaces and use plants, plant-based medicine, and daily acts for our overall happiness and well-being. This work isn't about a day at the spa or a simple vacation to recuperate, but how you can heal yourself and create a life that supports and nurtures you. We begin with Jessie sharing about her life and then take the conversation from there. So I feel like I've been doing permaculture all my life, but never really had a name for it until my early 20s. I grew up very land-based. My neighbors had a cow who was my best friend. I was always outside in the middle of nature and plants and streams and in the sound here in the Pacific Northwest or Seattle area. I just had this really deep passion for being so close and having a connection to plants and animals. Didn't trust people all that much. And I started my career looking for something that would fill me in a way that wasn't disturbing. So I, I originally started out trying to be a veterinarian or, or work in animal care. And in high school, I had odd jobs that were all about caring for animals, but I saw so much cruelty and abuse that I, I couldn't stomach it. And so my next passion was plants. And I thought to myself, oh, well, people don't abuse plants. <laughs> and um, I, I can definitely get through, you know, college without, you know, crying, seeing a plant, you know, tortured. But it was a journey that just kind of unfolded. And I first learned about permaculture actually while I was in college in the early 90s or mid 90s. And I got a introductory book from Bill Mollison and I read it and I thought, well, yeah, this is just common sense. And I practiced that in my daily work, um, even before I got that book. And so it was definitely something that I latched onto, but because it was so unheard of, people didn't know what it was back then, or a lot of people didn't. I never really used the word, and now I, I use it more often, but there's still a lot of people out there who don't know what permaculture is, and so it takes a lot of education to, to get them to understand that. But I think, ultimately, I feel like I've always practiced the ethics, specifically the, the first ethic of earth care in my work, and my personal path, along with my career, has changed and shifted as I've learned more and dived deeper into people care specifically. 
And then from that love of plants and introductory book from Bill Mollison, how did you kind of get from there to where you are now, writing and lecturing about permaculture? Did you take a PDC during the 90s when you were still in your 20s, or did you kind of come back around to this later on? Well, I started a business in 1999 called Northwest Bloom Ecological Services, and it was to meet a niche that I didn't see out there in the landscaping world. So my first jobs after college or during college were at nurseries and the conservation district. I would do restoration, um, and I started educating and writing in that position really early on. And I realized that there was this need not just in the public lands or public works projects, but for people that had access to land, they could definitely have used more ecological services. And so I started a business, not really intending to, I actually was trying to find jobs and I just, I couldn't find a job at that point that didn't involve me getting a pesticide license or, you know, feeling really uncomfortable. I was a very young woman and most people in that industry at that time were older men. I didn't feel safe, um, nor was I going to compromise my ethics of, you know, spraying pesticides. And so I started a business and it just grew. And there was a big need at that time for ecological or organic services. And yeah, it just kind of took off and people wanted more of it. And there was a point in my career where I couldn't necessarily keep growing the business because it was taking a big toll on me. And so from that point on, I've been on this quest to kind of figure out, well, where is this balance? The business goes up and down throughout the seasons, but very consistently um, successful in acquiring projects, permaculture projects, or you know anything from residential to farms to um, commercial projects um, and some public as well. So I've had about, at this point, 20 years of experience doing land-based design, build, and maintenance. Had a lot of time out in the landscape learning firsthand and really crafting that side of my work. And then when did you kind of see this opening for focusing more on people care and taking care of not only others but also ourselves? I can pinpoint a shift in my career where it kind of took a different direction I was at the Flower and Garden Show in Seattle, which is a big event here in February. And Seattle Tilth, who's now called Tilth Alliance, which is a nonprofit, asked me to collaborate with them and design a permaculture display for the show, which that was 2010. And in the middle of doing that, I was really sick. I had carbon monoxide poisoning and I had to carry around an oxygen tank. I was pushing myself way, way harder than I should have been. And that same event, I met Dave Bainline, who was and still is the education director up at the Bullock Homestead on Orcas Island. And he was like, wow, you know, I've never met someone in this area that installs permaculture designs. So we connected and became close friends and eventually ended up writing the permaculture, practical permaculture book together. But when I first went up to the Bullocks, I, I kind of saw a different version of permaculture than what I had been doing, and it included a lot more invisible structures, I guess is a way to put it, than I had been practicing at home and in my life. And so upon returning, 
the first time visiting them, I started to really analyze a lot of systems in my life and what was working, what wasn't, and, you know, how can I make changes? And, and that inspiration is what drove me initially to make those changes or shift in thinking of what permaculture could be. And during the process of writing the book with Dave, something really stood out to me in that permaculture offers a lot of really wonderful tools, but it's not always accessible. And the people who need it most don't necessarily always have an interest or actually need it or want it. And him and I both have different niches in the world of teaching where he's usually doing PDCs and advanced courses. And I'm usually more on the introductory side of things where I'm teaching people who have never heard of it before and just introducing the concept and opening those doors to them. And it really got me thinking, what is it that inspires people or how do people change and want to implement these things? And it just opened a lot of avenues for me. I took a big turn in my education path to study psychology, to study different spiritual belief systems energy work, human systems. I mean, the whole nine yards, I wanted to understand people. (laughs) And I, at the same time, was going through a divorce. I was managing a business and writing books and while raising children, which was no, it still is not an easy task. Um, I have two teenage boys at the moment who keep me pretty busy and on my toes. And I hit a burnout point where I couldn't do it all anymore. And I had a really hard time to kind of just personally accept, you know, hitting the reset button, like what's important to me. And in all of this, I had a homestead that had a lot of amazing systems, like really dialed in. And suddenly none of that became important to me. And I really wanted to look at, well, what, what feeds me? What, what takes care of me? I was also diagnosed with PTSD around that same time and really had to understand what was going on inside of myself before I could show up for anyone else. And so I had the privilege, fortunately, to do a lot of work with healing that or at least understanding it at a different consciousness or level of understanding within myself and started doing a lot of work to become trauma-informed and taking a lot of trainings and learning about different mental health issues. And out of that, I started to write a new book because what I had learned felt so important. And especially when it comes to taking care of the earth, people care became just so monumental in understanding that people can't take care of the earth as a priority if their needs aren't met or they're not taking care of themselves. So that's that's how I guess it um, shifted, if that answers your question <laughs> in a long-winded way. It tells the story of how you moved from where you were to where you are now, and I, I appreciate hearing that. When we met at Mother Earth News Fair in Pennsylvania last year and you started telling me about this new book that you were working on and this exploration, it really resonated with me because it's one of the things that took me a long time to work through. I had a personal health crisis of my own in my mid-20s, which led me into some some crisis intervention conversations to get through the worst of what was occurring then. And then these this ongoing work for myself about understanding what it means to really take care of oneself and what it's like to set boundaries and be able to say no 
and some of these other things that, you know, were things that I never had before. And in discovering that how much better I felt and how much healthier I became. And as you say, you know, if we're not taking care of ourselves and doing well, it makes it hard to take care of the earth or to make, for me, I find very often, it's very hard to make the good decisions that help us to continue down the path that we're on because it's easy to fall back on old habits or things that might be more destructive or not in in align with what our actual values are. And so it kind of leads us to this place to have this conversation that is a bit hard and a bit deep for me to dig into, but it's something that I've I've wanted to talk about. And with what you shared with me, as I say, when we met, I feel that you're a great person to have this conversation with. So would you lead us through some of your thoughts on what real self-care looks like and what that means for those of us who are engaged in this difficult work kind of on the edge? Every person is so different in where they're at in knowing about themselves. Some people operate and have no consciousness of, of what they're doing, even you know, energetically or pushing boundaries of other people. And then some people are very conscious and do know how to take care of themselves. So I think if I were to speak to like the permaculture community in general and what I see that could, I think could help, especially people who are in leadership positions or teaching positions or orchestrating projects, doing design and build or working with other populations specifically, is that we can't expect everybody to be in the same place that we're at. And in learning about trauma specifically, I think that would be really helpful if the the world became more trauma-informed and understood what that looks like. And it's really hard because it requires vulnerability in ourselves to look at that and to feel it in order to have empathy. And I believe everybody has had trauma. I mean, in one way or another, it's not all, you know, going to war and having physical injuries. A lot of it's emotional or based in relationships. And in order to really build a a community or have projects that are successful long-term, it's easy to build, you know, go plant a bunch of trees. But what's hard is to have a community that takes care of them and nurtures them. And, you know, there's a lot of issues around people interacting with each other. Just like we abuse the planet, people abuse each other and may or may not be conscious of it, either in their expectations of, you know, pushing someone or, you know, wanting to control a situation or whatever. But having PTSD, I've become hyper aware of when someone's out of alignment or pushing someone else. And yeah, it's hard to teach that. I know in some of the trainings that I've been through, we do work that has actually put people in positions like they don't really know the scenario until it plays out. And then that way they feel it. And I think that's a really important thing for people to get and have trainings in so that there is empathy. But that would be one of the big issues that I would love to see just everybody learn and become trauma-informed. It occurs with everybody. I mean, there's there's veterans who have trauma from war. There's women who have it from sexual assault. There's people who have been, you know, bitten by a dog that have trauma. There's people who have been psychologically abused by their parents or relationships. So there's there's all different levels of it. And when you meet people and interact with them, you often don't know. I mean, I would hope everybody would want to be compassionate with each other and and understand people's limitations. And 
that's something that requires communication, really good communication. And so another thing that I would love to see happen in the world and uh, non-violent violent communication, I often think of it similar to permaculture where it has this name that doesn't resonate with people, but it has really good teachings. They don't necessarily go as far as they could, but the idea and the format or the tools that nonviolent communication offer are really useful just in general in understanding what people's needs are and being able to name certain emotions or feelings that are coming up when communicating with others. And this becomes really important because we can't isolate ourselves and be alone all the time. We do have to interact with others, um, whether it be our spouses, our children, or our clients, or our colleagues, um, or the community that we live in. And so to really have self-care, I think we need to be aware of all those things around us and make sure that we're in a position of, you know, having a a nervous system in a body that's in homeostasis <laughs> took me a long time to learn. I operated out of fl- fight or flight for a long period of time, which was really hard on my body, but it's all I knew. And I think a lot of people operate out of that. It just manifests differently. For me, luckily, a lot of it was just like working all the time, just staying busy, 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 never saying no to something because I just wanted to always have something to do. And that's just one manifestation. But Others, it might be addiction or something that is more destructive outside of just your own body. So there's a lot of ways to, to approach it, and everybody has their own, their own journey and their own stuff to look at and how they, they take care of themselves and how they interact with everything around them. But it all boils down to intentions, I think, values, and the energy that we share with the world. What is it to be trauma-informed? Is it an understanding of the different kinds of trauma that someone can experience from, you know, the emotional to the physical to what might occur in war? Or is it something more specific, more general? One thing about trauma is just understanding how it works in someone's body. And that, I would say, is the beginning of becoming trauma-informed and understanding that. It's, it's one of those topics, you know, I think that the world is so driven to have these positive experiences, you know, social media likes and love, and we're not always willing to go into the deeper shadow work and look at some of those things that are difficult or perceived as negative. So I think that's a part of it. And usually when someone enters into some kind of training with trauma, it really opens it up in yourself. And that becomes very hard for some people who, you know, want to always be positive and can't be vulnerable in that way, but it could be anything. You never know what someone's trauma is. And a lot of people don't, because our bodies are designed to actually shut that out. Um, It takes work to go in to even understand it within yourself. Um, But once you do that work, then you can start to really have empathy for other people and understand their trauma. And trauma exists all around us more so in oppressed populations and communities. And so the more privilege I think we have, the less trauma we experience, but that's not always the case. It's just um, something to really be mindful of in others and their experience of the world, which may be different than yours. When it comes to training, what kind of opportunities or classes or workshops would you point people towards if they'd like to understand trauma better and get to this awareness in themselves and others? 
Are there organizations that are offering that? Yeah, I guess it depends on how deep you want to go and how much time. Um, just like, it's funny, you asked me about PDC and I forgot to answer. Taking a PDC is a big commitment for someone like me who has children and has to work all the time. There's trainings that are designed, you could take trainings online, you could take trainings at a professional level, you know, going into that, it depends on what I think you have time for, first of all, and then what you can afford. There's some free trainings, actually, that are are very low cost that I think might be helpful as an introductory. One of the ones that I really found valuable that I now require my staff to take, it's called the Mental Healthcare First Aid Certification. And it's a two-day training where you basically learn how to identify when someone is struggling with a mental health care issue. There's very introductory level trauma work, but it also goes into other things from psychosis to um, just like anxiety, like understanding what that looks like in people and then understanding how to offer or share resources with them. It's not like a medical certification where you become able to diagnose and you know, offer prescriptions or anything like that, but it's, you know, helping people lead them to the right resources so that they can get help. So that's a really good one, I think, to start out with. I've done all sorts of them. And I think one of the best teachings for me was doing my own work and really learning about it because then I, I've embodied the experience. It's something that you can intellectualize all you want and read about, but until you feel it in your body, you don't, necessarily get it. And it takes time. It takes working with professionals. When I realized I had PTSD and was diagnosed, I literally like sought out every type of healing modality that I could to understand what my options were and to really understand and break down what was happening inside of my body. Because it's not something that is easy to comprehend. You have to feel it. You have to intellectualize it too in in order to to know neurologically why certain things are happening. It's interesting and it's we could talk about it for hours I'm sure, but the mental health care training first aid is a good place to start. One of my favorite trainings was a yoga trauma training. I'm now teaching trauma informed yoga as a part of this because that's one of the best ways for healing, I think, at least in my experience it has been. But one of the things that we did was role play and you didn't really know what was going to play out until, you know, someone who had their card to read from and then you had your scenario that you were sitting in. You didn't really know how it was going to play out until you actually did it and saw other people's reactions. And And the program was so well designed that it was meant to sort of trigger you so that you could see, you know, you don't ask a pregnant teen to do downward dog or, you know, like there's there's things that you may not think about and whatever population or or people that you're working with may have experienced trauma or something in in such a way that you have to tune into somehow. And so that training really opened that doorway up for me to, to see it and feel it. And working with people who have trauma is something that I think we need to approach very carefully and you can't just go into an environment and assume everybody's going to be, you know, exactly where you're at and enthusiastic about permaculture. And so becoming trauma-informed, I think, is one of the, the best things that we can do as teachers, as practitioners, as, as humans, to just have more compassion and empathy for everyone. As we work through that space and understand 
more about trauma within ourselves and others and get training and move through this physically, intellectually, emotionally, where do we go as we build upon this kind of a base with ourselves and others? Oh, that's a tough one because it's so it's so different for everybody and what they feel comfortable in. You know, like not everybody is going to want to go to a grief ceremony, for example, to work on something that they're grieving. You know, this is why I wrote this book. <laughs> if I could just plug this real quick. Because in exploring this in myself, I found that there's so many different ways to approach it. And really having connection with yourself is really important. And when we're, we're so busy all the time, you know, we lose connection with ourselves or we're doing things for other people. And so slowing down and like meditation is a good place to start. But that's not always a practice that I think everybody's excited about or can sit still for. <laughs> like me, it took a really long time to learn how to meditate. I think that everybody is going to have a different entry point. And it's hard to say when that'll happen or where, where it'll start. And I think it either has to come from seeing that need in themselves or being inspired by someone that shares that with them in, in their own journey. So the book that I wrote, it kind of goes through that. Like, how do you find places to start to self-care? Because as a designer, of course, I I look at spaces as one of the places that we can we can begin with, making sure our environment is sacred to us and safe. So the book is called Creating Sanctuary, and it starts off with designing space, both honoring the land from an ecological sense and using permaculture ethics, and really exploring what sacred means to, to yourself and pulling examples from different sacred sites around the world. And then I look at plants and how relationships with plants can be really healing. And this is one of the entry points that I think a lot of people can explore and play around with safely, that it doesn't require a massive amount of vulnerability or, you know, breaking through fear to approach. And plants are amazing healers. And one of the things that I did or I've been doing for the past six years is studying herbalism and looking at, well, what plants heal in us that we can really use in our daily lives. So my focus, of course, was heavily on the nervous system and trauma and, and more of the emotional side of healing, whereas some herbalism focuses more on physical. I looked at, you know, when I am grieving, what kind of plants can help me? Or if I'm depressed or I'm, you know, going through a very specific emotion that's difficult, how can plants aid me in that process? So learning how to use plants in that way. A lot of these plants we have in our gardens or available to us pretty easily, if not in our gardens, through teas or something that can be purchased. So that's that's one of the entry points that I really focus on in the book. And I I break down 50 plants that have had a medical or spiritual healing that has been used for thousands of years in human history, but is now finally validated by science. So that was a lot of fun to research, and I'm really excited about that part of it. And then lastly, what do we do with the plants and incorporate them and how we can take practices of our daily lives and really make a ritual or routines out of them so that you know, when you know you're going through something, how do you take care of yourself? How can you set yourself up with a, a practice that can hold you through that time, but then get you out on the other side healthier and, you know, you get a little growth spurt out of it emotionally. So 
it takes ex- exploration, I think. And I'm a big proponent of mental health care, which unfortunately here in the United States doesn't get a lot of support. But having a good therapist or counselor is always good. Having a, a circle or a network of people that you can do this work with is also extremely helpful. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of avenues, I think. It's just finding out what, what you're comfortable with. And I've heard from people who are not comfortable with the professional uh, mental health care system because of, of some things that have gone sideways. And I, I've heard from many people who have had less than great experience with doctors and professionals of all kinds. So I can understand and recognize that and, you know, how important it can be just to find a couple of friends who are close to you who can make time and space, you know, not necessarily in a professional or crisis way, but just as an entry point to find the things that we need. And then also understanding that, you know, those things may change over time and we'll continue to find some new things that work for us as long as we're open to them. Yeah, one of the, my favorite things to recommend is an app called Insight Timer, and it has guided meditations or timed meditations. And it's really fun. You can kind of go in and like, what do I want to work on? Or, you know, if you have trouble falling asleep, there's sleep meditations. I found that really helpful and an easy entry for meditation for people. I couldn't sit and um, realize later that a lot of what I did for self-care in like getting lost in my garden or snowboarding or things that I did physically were actually meditative and very healing for me. And so now I've, I try really hard to set aside time for that. And I think that's a big part of self-care is balancing, you know, the go, go, go or the busyness of life with the self-care time and making sure that you don't get through the end of the day and didn't have any downtime or reflective time to take care of yourself. And it's all about setting up routines and habits that do work and exploring new ones when, when the old ones aren't working anymore. And it's one of the things that I like about what you're sharing with us today. And it's one of the things that I've been encountering through my own exploration of these ideas is that a lot of times when we run into this concept of self-care, you know, you're standing there at the grocery store or someplace and there's the magazine rack and it's about what can I buy next? You know, what kind of an, of an escapist endeavor can I engage in? But I find that the more that I dig into this idea of real self-care in like a radical way, that it's about creating the routines and the habits and really the life that we don't feel the need to escape from anymore, that it, it nurtures us. And we have the the space, the community, the people, the professionals, everything in line so that when we do have a resurgence of trauma in our life or a difficult moment or something that we're working through that we have those things already in place that we can turn to. One of my favorite things, and I, I think will hopefully be useful in the book, is how to how to design your own apothecary and learn which plants help you so that you can simply start your day off with a cup of tea and the intention of, or healing that that plant can offer um, really starts you out right. And the same thing in, at the end of the day, really looking at when and how, and designing that for yourself. And it goes back to that idea of taking what we learn from permaculture and applying it to self-care. And the more that I look at the way that I live my life, though it may not be about making a cup of tea, the relationship that I've developed with the seasons and with plants, and a sense of place that I find to be 
nurturing now. Going with my son in the spring and when we have that last snow on the ground and going by the stream bank and looking for where the holes are in the snow because that's where the skunk cabbage is. Going with my daughter in spring and her and I going in foraging for violets and knowing that they're going to be there and the conversation that she and I can have and also just to be sitting there and eating the violets or making violet syrup from them. Getting to the elderberries when they're ripe but before the deer get to them. <laughs> So that I can harvest them and that relationship with, again, the seasons and those plants and the way that I'm sure that any of us, if we are able to find the time and the space, can find those relationships and those connections with the world around us in ways that we might not necessarily be aware of in our day-to-day lives when we're running from one project to the next, that insanity sometimes of life. Yeah, I think we're designed biologically to have those relationships and connection with plants in place. And we're we're getting so disconnected from that as a species. And I think that's a lot of where illness comes from. And you named exactly what feeds me too at a soul level is going out and and foraging in the season. And um, I just harvested nettles the other day. And I just feel so purposeful and alive and human (laughs) when I do something like that. Versus going to a shopping mall or, you know, like I can't, those places I can't even stomach being around. But our, our world around us is being designed to disconnect us from that, I think, biological root of, of what we are. And so it's a matter of really trying to stay in touch with that. And I think that's where wellness comes from. We've talked a lot about our kind of personal journeys and exploration through this. And you've touched on some about your book, which will be out later this year. I was wondering if you could share some more with us about that professional side of your work and what you're working on so that people might connect with that as they explore this personal side of what we've talked about today. My business is 18 years old this year, and it's it feels pretty monumental. It's all grown up. It's an adult now. And um, through the years, I've realized that what I've been doing, it's been a wonderful journey and working for people to create spaces in their own backyards. I've had this another shift in my work in realizing that, you know, looking at colonialism and people taking care of or quote owning land, it's been landing on me in a way that I wanted to shift my work and make my work more accessible to people who don't own land or who could use that connection but just don't have access to it. And sometimes I think of permaculture as this way of just recolonizing, especially, you know, people who want to homestead and not let anyone in and just, you know, live in their bubble. And I've been really thinking about that and how to apply permaculture in more of a social or community way. So my latest project is my company leased some farmland. It's preserved agricultural space in Redmond, Washington. And um, we're looking at expanding our nursery to increase biodiversity in the region because most of the nurseries have been sold out or the land developed. So people are buying plants from all of their regions and the plants aren't necessarily always acclimated to here. And so a part of that project I'm looking at is working with vulnerable populations and marginalized communities to have land access and have spaces and education around having those connections and growing food and everything that permaculture offers so beautifully, but isn't accessible to a large portion of the population because of 
land access. And I think that's a really important thing we, we need to be looking at because as the population grows and resources are spread thin um, here in this region in Seattle, they're expecting the population in the next five years to grow by 1.5 million people, which our infrastructure is already taxed. But we need to start looking at places that we can share and have build community around, hopefully, and um, rather than just, you know, setting up camp and homesteading and not really participating with the rest of the world, because we're all in this together. And I think that there's a lot of directions you can go and take, but that's just something that I've, I've kind of realized is, you know, offering permaculture to affluent people isn't necessarily going to always help um, the bigger picture when there's so many people in need. And yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on now and kind of shifted my direction towards. So I'm not sure if that resonates with anyone else, but it would sure be wonderful to see permaculture designers and teachers really focusing on people care first and helping people that need it or want it be able to practice and have that, that same access. It's certainly something that I would love to have a follow-up conversation with you about because it is a conversation that we've spoken about in the local permaculture community here in Pennsylvania quite a bit because unless you want to go very far away from the population centers, land is very expensive in this area. So the idea of purchasing land, it's very much outside possibility for many, many people who want to practice this kind of work. And so any kind of models or methods that we might have to be able to come together to make it more available and more accessible would be very, very useful, I think, for many folks who are in areas such as my own or who are trying to figure out how to do this in cities. So, well, Jesse, I really enjoy the places that you've taken us today. It wound up being a more personal conversation than I originally expected when we talked about it. But with a couple of minutes that we have left, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I don't. I feel like I could just go off on another tangent and that's that we don't have the time or space for it. And sometimes we come to this space and in the time that we have, we've said everything that we need to. And so I thank you for that and for taking this time to join me and suggesting, you know, last year when we met at Mother to have this conversation. I'm really glad that you did and that we were able to. So thank you for joining me for today. Thanks for having me. And that was Jessie Bloom. Find out more about her and her work at jessiebloom.com and her books, including Creating Sanctuary, at timberpress.com. You'll find those and links to trauma awareness trainings and mental health first aid in the show notes. When I started my own exploration of permaculture in earnest and took a permaculture design course, my instructors Ben Weiss and Dylan Neighbor Cruz both spoke about how this system of design could apply to our invisible structures and that a permaculture design course could focus on home economics, activism, community development, or any other human endeavor. At the time, and when launching this podcast, very little literature was available that took design beyond gardens or food forests. The discussion was, and in some circles remains, divided between whether or not social permaculture existed, or whether or not we should just focus on the landscape. During that period, we had to look to where the edges of permaculture touched other disciplines and took our thoughts deeper into the human experience than a meal or our next few harvests. To authors like Daniel Quinn or William Upsky Wimsett, 
From reading their books and learning more about the work of leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi, it was revealed that their journeys began with themselves and their communities long before marching to Washington, D.C., or on the Salt March to Dandy. From those two places and conversations with other long-time permaculture practitioners who worked beyond the landscape, my position on permaculture moved toward that place where my teachers indicated this thought could go, toward people, communities, and direct action. Now we have authors like Jesse, or Adam Brock, or David Holmgren in his latest book, who now integrate these many ideas into an even more holistic system. This new edge, this social permaculture, holds the highest potential for the change and engagement needed to create a more healthy, peaceful, and beautiful world. What do you think of this conversation with Jesse? What do you do to take care of yourself? Have you attended a course in mental health first aid, or become trauma-informed? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.